Welcome to our very first episode of MPMA's Bug Bites, your podcast for the latest in science, news, and information impacting the world of pest management. I'm your host, Mike Bentley. And in our very first episode, we're going to be diving into the world of rodents with famed rodentologist and pest management professional, Dr. Robert Corrigan. But before we do, I feel like it would be worth taking a few minutes to talk to you a little bit about what this podcast is and the vision behind it. The truth is, I've never made a podcast before, and I have no idea what I'm doing. I just know that in my role, I get the incredible opportunity to talk to a lot of really cool and interesting people, industry icons, leading researchers, technological visionaries. These are literally the people that shape the future of pest control. And I thought there had to be some way to share some of these really amazing conversations and experiences with the world. So here we are. So maybe this podcast is something you listen to for entertainment or education. You may accidentally learn something along the way. Regardless, I hope it's something you enjoy listening to as much as I've enjoyed putting together. Okay, let's get down to business. Today's topic is rodents. And not just any rodents, we're talking commensal rodents. That means those rats and mice that we encounter most often around our homes and structures. Things like Norway rats, roof rats, and house mice. There are very few, if any, scenarios that anyone would find themselves happy to encounter a rodent inside their home. Rats and mice are one of those pest groups that are universally disliked and even feared in most cases, and for good reason. For starters, rodents pose a major health risk to people. They carry a whole host of ectoparasites such as fleas, mites, ticks, all these things carry disease. They're even implicated in spreading over 50 different diseases themselves. And believe it or not, there's an estimated 50,000 rodent bites reported each year. And if that's not bad enough, rodents even pose a constant threat to our global food supply. In fact, 42 million tons of food around the world are damaged each year, costing nearly $30 billion in losses. And when they're not making us sick, rodents even damage our structures. When their constant gnawing behavior is directed towards things like electrical wiring, they could cause dangerous shorts, which could lead to electrical fires. And similar damage can even occur to plumbing lines, causing major water damage inside homes. Even rodent nesting behavior can be a serious problem. Outdoors, underground burrowing can undermine structural integrity of things like the foundation of homes, sidewalks, and roads. And indoors, wall and ceiling insulation can be irreversibly damaged when rats and mice nest and burrow inside structures. All right, so I think you get the point. Rodents are bad news, right? But enough of me babbling on about rats. It's time to hear from somebody who actually knows what they're talking about when it comes to rodents, Bobby Corrigan. Now, Bobby has been an influential member of the pest control industry for over 30 years now. But for anyone not familiar with him, let me run through a set of brief but impressive cliff notes on this guy's career. He's published over 160 technical articles. He's authored or co-authored a number of important pest control textbooks, including the Scientific Guide to Pest Management Operations, the Handbook of Pest Control, Rodent Pest Management, and the Encyclopedia of Pest Management. In 2005, he was awarded the EPA's IPM Award for his novel approaches to pest control and food safety in schools. In 2011, he received the City of New York's Distinguished Service Award for innovative research addressing the control of rodents in New York City. And in 2016, he was awarded Cornell University's Outstanding Achievement and Urban IPM Award. And in the middle of all that, he was even inducted to the Pest Control Hall of Fame. Bobby has appeared in Time Magazine, The New Yorker, the CBS Sunday Morning Show. He's interviewed several times for NPR. He's made multiple appearances on the Discovery Channel. He also runs a blog for rodents about the New York Times. And 
Now, after today, he can finally add the MPMA Bug Bites podcast to that impressive list of accolades. Now, I had the unique opportunity to catch up with Bobby in his home turf in New York City to kind of pick his brain about the landscape of rodent control today. The world of rodent control has seen some major changes over the past decade in terms of technology, the development of new products, restrictions on existing products. And with so much change, it left me with a lot of questions. Where our industry is at right now and uh, where we potentially could be going in terms of rodent management. So I figured what better way to get these questions answered than to go straight to the rodent master himself. So the plan was simple. I was going to show up to New York, spend a few hours walking around the streets, up and down alleyways with Bobby. He was going to point out signs and symptoms of rodent activity. Then I was going to ask him a few questions. Now, I've spent some time with Bobby over the years, so I thought I had a pretty good idea of what to expect from spending a day with the famed Dr. Corrigan. What started off as a simple walkthrough of the streets of New York City turned into one of the most interesting, complex, and educational experiences I've ever had. I expected Bobby to just point out rub marks on sidewalks, maybe gaps through door thresholds, things like that. Instead, what I got was this mind-blowing series of lectures in real time of some of the most overlooked details in New York City. And many of these conversations started off completely abstract and you didn't really know where they were going. Maybe it was just because Bobby was so passionate about New York City. These were just simply details that he really enjoyed about the city. But some way, somehow, for every one of these conversations, he would find a way to intertwine all of these things back together to be some of the most important pieces of information that you could see that everybody just casually walks over on a daily basis that all tie together kind of like a treasure map on how to read the city and use all of these seemingly meaningless details to lead you right to where rodents are. And that's exactly what we did. Now, if you're interested in seeing what it was like to walk around with Bobby through the streets of New York, I recorded our entire walkthrough on a 360 camera. So we have that available for everybody on the MPMA website. So just make sure you go there if you're interested at all in seeing um, what Bobby had to say while we were walking through the streets of New York. Now, Bobby's crazy level of historic knowledge and passion for a city really speaks to who he is as a New Yorker. I mean, it, you could just tell in the way that he talked about things in New York, he absolutely loves the city. So I guess it shouldn't have come as a surprise to me that when it finally came time to decide where we were going to record the interview, that Bobby thought it was most appropriate to make sure that we recorded it in Central Park. Beautiful setting, not so ideal for audio quality. So you're going to have to bear with me for some of the random gusts of wind and the constant background street noise that competes with Bobby's interview throughout the entire thing. But I, I guess uh, it doesn't get more New York than downtown traffic and cars honking as Bobby's trying to explain to you how his beautiful city can be saved from rodents. So when we finally found a good spot for the interview, I figured the best way to start off the conversation was by setting the record straight on a few common myths and urban legends about rodents. So let's begin by separating fact from fiction. There's more rats in New York City than people, right? Is that true? No, it's not. Okay. It's not. Um, but, but I know what you're getting at because the press for the past 10 yep. years has said yep. one rat for every person, two rats for every person, <laughs> three, and it keeps going up. We don't know how many rats there are. There's a lot. There's a lot. And they were here before us. Well, no, they weren't. <laughs> okay. No, they weren't. So the rat in New York City came over seven, late 1700s, maybe a little bit earlier. So um, they came up with all the trade ships from Asia and Europe, you know. Although, you know, the, you begin to get into that whole timeline thing of 
know which species and the order of denture and so forth and so on and and that's not my field so I couldn't comment as to <laughs> who came first and what levels and what species but they've been around a long time is there one myth or fallacy or old old tale that you constantly hear people say that they pass off as truth that it's absolutely not true whether it's the general homeowner is saying it or the news is saying it or a PMP is saying it one thing that you'd like to set the record straight with I'd probably go after the size issue you know and even this past week on the internet you know what was made to look like an official report that the rats are getting bigger and bigger because of our fast food restaurants that they have too much food and the Fast food is feeding them too much, too much fat, too much grease, and they're getting bigger and bigger. And so I always hear people say, um, you know, they're getting as big as alley cats, and they're not afraid of us anymore. They're brazen now. So they're big and they're brazen. That myth I hear almost constantly. And it's simply not true. You know, so far the world record on the Noi rat, which is the bigger of the rat species, around is 1.8 ounces. It's not to that rat's advantage to get bigger than that because it won't be able to run away quickly and dart down a hole quickly and escape predators quickly. Now, so, 1.8 pounds or ounces? 1.8 pounds, sorry. Oh, you're one, good. Yeah, 1.8 pounds. One pound, eight ounces. So it's, it's a case of, you know, they're not, unless someone comes up and is there an anomaly out there that there may be a three pound rat that we just never have discovered or bumped into every once in a while we find these anomalies whether it's a seven foot three inch tall human being yeah maybe but i'll wait to see it but the myth is they're getting bigger and brazen and that's the one the most common one just is not true it almost feels like a an impossible set of challenges that new york is up against and it's the same or similar set of challenges that you see in other big cities, like you talked about today. So the entire, this northeastern area is rodent-prone. Well, let's start with that. You, you mentioned earlier today that the northeastern area is very rodent-prone, that from Boston and D.C. and New York City, you have these big cities that have these big problems. Why is it that all of these cities have this problem? Is it something they share, or is it... Right, so it's not exclusive to the northeastern sector of the United States by any stretch, but... What do we have in common with uh, rodent control is lots of people, right? High, and not the numbers of people, but the density of the people. So when you have high-density cities, like I just mentioned, those are all high-density cities. Inherent problems with high-density, of course, we think, well, there's going to be a lot of food refuse generated by a lot of people. And as things fall apart, in combination with there's lots of food opportunities through refuse, you have a species, well, you have three species, the roof rats, the noways, and the house mice. They're opportunistic foragers, and they're always searching around for opportunities. So if you put that together with all these people and all this wear and tear in our cities, much more than we ever probably anticipated 100 years ago, we never dreamt there would be this kind of use of our cities to this degree. These rodents are saying, you know, as things deteriorate for you, they improve for us. And, and that's the common thread right there. And we put that together with people that are saying, well, how much should it cost to get rid of rats in the backyard? 
how much should it cost to get rid of the mice in the school? And the answer is, quite frankly, it should cost a lot more than what the market is allowing for. But yet, many times they want to pay as low as possible, and it eliminates that great partnership. And I see that through all the big cities, that the rodents benefit from a little bit of our misguided thinking. You know, you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, that you know, what kind of value is there to having a pest management professional be a part of the planning process for, for, for construction, for new construction, and renovating old construction? Yeah, and that's a great point, and a critical point is, you know, I, I, once I found a publication by a, a German scientist by the name of Zacher, 1927, and in this publication he stressed you know, we're going back almost 100 years ago. And Dr. Zacher said, look, from the very get-go, a biologist should always be consulted when a building is being constructed and designed and put up and as well as taken down. And Zacher meant by that is because if you don't consult a biologist, in this case, pest management professional, you're not going to do the doors right. You're not going to seal the holes correctly. You're not going to put joints together correctly. You're going to leave gaps that let all the vermin in and then try to kill them after they're in. Where the fact of the matter is you should always, in modern day, is an invite a pest management professional from the very get-go, going back to Zacher's recommendation of what things should we be aware of as we build this new super apartment or this new supermarket or this new shopping mall. Please tell us what things to avoid doing so that we don't pay the price with having disease-carrying rodents running everywhere. And you, you just said something really interesting. You know, we, we never could have forecasted what the, how we would use our city 100 years ago. You know, trying to apply that to now, what could we try to do for the next 100 years to save ourselves from being in a, in a worse situation then than we are now. I mean, is there a solution? I don't know. But No, I think there is. Um, and I don't think it's pie in the sky. I don't think it's realistic. I think it's not asking too much for people to maintain their own nest. You know, your home, wherever you live, whether it's an apartment, a condominium, a private single-family resident house, or, or some kind of a spread on a ranch, you know, that's your nest. And... Biology has taught us that if you wish to avoid having disease, bacteria that grows from decaying materials and animals that move in with fleas and ticks and lice and hide in clutter and junk piles, if you maintain your own nest, you will minimize the chances of getting sick or an epidemic breaking out like the plague as we all know about. And so going forth, I think the lesson we can learn is everybody has to be responsible for maintaining their nest because your nest affects your neighbor's nest. And going forth, personally, for big cities, I would like to see a stricter code that you are at first issued a warning. Your property is not up to code and your behavior is not up to code. And we're giving you a warning. You'll have, let's just say, 30 days to fix that. And then, the fine is going to be significant in some form or fashion, or we will clean this for you and issue the cost of having done that. So I think if we do not, as we go forward in all the major cities of the world, 
hold people more accountable to those that do not maintain the test, we're going to pay for it. And the payment can be very severe if we have a disease outbreak. And new publications are showing that these animals are carrying diseases we really did not think they were carrying. And we now know they are. They're carrying new viruses. Viruses that have never been categorized yet. Viruses are real frightening ones. And both rats and mice, they discovered new viruses that belong to groups that are pretty dangerous viruses. Therein um, is an issue that probably has the Center for Disease Control's attention. So what happens next is what I can only assume was the entire New York City Fire Department drives by where we're sitting. Unfortunately, this meant that the audio took a bit of a dive here. So for the sake of your eardrums, I decided to go ahead and omit this part of the conversation. Basically what you miss here is that I'm asking Bobby to talk a little bit about this newly approved and very promising management tool, dry ice. We've been using dry ice for, for decades and decades to euthanize laboratory animals as a humane method. So, so it's been around a long time, but it just recently reemerged as a field tool for controlling noi rats and burrows in exterior areas, which is neither here nor there, and it's an interesting reason for that. But nevertheless, over the past several years, um, we've collected data, we've submitted it to EPA, and EPA gave it a federal registration, which is required by the FIFRA, and now states are following suit of allowing state registrations. And quite frankly, I've been involved with Dryas now for the past five years, part of that data package submission, and as a rodentologist, I have to say it is a phenomenal tool now both in effectiveness and being humane in the way we actually will will um, take care of their no way right problem in boroughs. It's made a big impact on rodent management here in New York City too, right? It really has. You know, in parks, for example, rats in New York and other cities, rats love parks. Plenty of food and litter baskets, plenty of healthy soil to nest in, and, and so they build up in tremendous numbers. Well, now with dry ice, Dry ice can be inserted into their burrow systems. It sublimates. The rats go to sleep in, into torpor, and they simply do not wake up. It's it's very effective. It's very clean, if you will. There's no secondary threat to hawks and owls and dogs and coyotes and so forth. So dry ice is one of those tools. You know, it's a it's an old thing that's smart again. What's old is new. That's right. <laughs> and, and in this case, it's amazingly good so but you know talking about all the tools that we have i feel like one of the the dangers that pmps often can get into is to kind of rely on one thing too heavily right right so there's no there's no any one tool that's the magic solution for everything so everything, in some cases, traps will be the solution. In other cases, a redenticide bait, carefully applied, will be the solution. In some cases, removing the garbage is the solution. And it won't be a trap or a bait. But each case unto itself, and that's where the future should be. And we're training everyone to make proper assessments first, and then proper application of tools second. So in some situations on you know, certain parts of the country where some of the tools that we utilize are 
under scrutiny and, and of concern. Um, you know, do you think that that could present challenges if certain tools, specifically anticoagulant rodenticides, um, if those are removed from the tool belt? Is that is that a solution or is that a problem? I mean, I'm sure it's far more complicated than a simple answer, but how do you feel about that? I mean, is that... I, I think it would be a colossal mistake. I know certain states have bills that have been proposed and submitted to ban, for example, orthenticides. From a public health standpoint, if, if a state was to ban the use of redenticides, the impact from a public health standpoint would be disastrous. So there's no doubt about it. I mean, I think it is a simple answer. Like, you really would not want to do that. You know, there's a way where we can keep those public health tools and not have that issue. I would say this, that if, if we as an industry are applying redenticides as a standard operating procedure, regardless of whether or not there's an infestation, that's not smart pest management. That's not scientific pest management. That is using a tangible object to show a customer, see those black boxes? They protect you. And if that's all that's being sold is they protect you, that's an incorrect use of a valuable tool, a redenticide in this case, which is not justified. You know, I've been involved in some of those debates and discussions, and I've stated what I just said is it would be a mistake to remove redenticides from any But it is also uh, incorrect and unjustifiable to put out redenticides in areas where there is no infestation. That needs to be the compromise, in my opinion. And some people say, well, uh, you know, I'm protecting this building from rodents. And you protect that building from rodents by good pest proofing, good inspections, good assessments, and not allowing food for the rodents. They will not be at that property. And that should be an assessment that we charge for and even help that client. Let me show you that I can pest proof your doors for you. So we got to come to a compromise that makes sense for both sides. So that's a perfect lead-in into asking you to offer a little bit more detail about something you mentioned earlier, which was um, remote monitoring. Right. So tell me a little bit more about that, what you can share with the projects that you're working with now, and what it is, what the technology means for rodent management and and other applications to where uh, remote monitoring is being applied. Sure. So now the technology, and it, which is actually probably 20 years old, it's not brand new, but the technology is finally catching up, so to speak, with the science. So right now, roughly, there's about eight to 12 companies that are um, aggressively going after um, pest monitoring systems, both insects and rodents. And um, rodents right now, I can tell you um, that the technology is putting sensors electronic sensors into various spots and even in bait stations or stations without any bait. We are going to be able to put out these sensors in different locations, many different ways. Think of the power of installing, let's say, 25 sensors in a pharmaceutical facility. You can't have any mice in a pharmaceutical facility. It's unacceptable. One is too many. Or a food plant or a hospital 
or school you know, with his children and mice carry diseases. So our future, these, this technology that is emerging and that is going to be everywhere all the time and everyone will be using remote sensors as common as anything we use today is a no-brainer. The interesting thing to me is where are we going to be in five years? Like right now, we're at V1, V2, and V3 of these sensors. Five years from now, we're going to be at V8 or V9. Those sensors, in my opinion, I've seen some of the bit of the future, and I can tell you it's, it's going to be total game changer. As big as when we used to do termites by complete drill and treat and spray the foundations all the time, you know, and then we realized you can actually also use baits for termites. That was revolutionary. Using cockroach baits was revolutionary. Remote sensing, pest sensing for rodents and other pests is going to be as big, if not bigger, than all of what I just mentioned. Wow. Yeah. It's exciting. So you think we're five years, within five years of seeing some of that? I think we're actually pretty much immediately seeing the early stages that have applicability. I've been working with some of the sensors for the past two years um, in different parts of, of the United States. What I've learned as a scientist with these sensors about rodents has been a game changer for me. So we already have application for it, but I'm saying in five years, I think the applications are going to be very sophisticated. That's exciting. It is. So where do you think we're heading with all of this? What do you think the next, what do you hope that the next step is with, with our evolution of how we control rodents? We're seeing that um, we can use technology such as remote sensing, monitoring boxes, monitoring baits, you know, that have no toxicants in them, wildlife cams, all of that technology, uh, now that it's actually there as a tool, um, is carrying us into an area of like, the future of pest management is not so much better chemicals, but forward thinking. And, and in fact, I think thinking is the future. You know, that's what it's gonna be. So, there you have it. Rodents in all likelihood are here to stay. But that's okay, as long as we take the right approach to prevention and control. And, with a little help from some tools of the future, combined with a few well-timed control strategies from the past, we can achieve safe and effective management in nearly any situation. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of MPMA's Bug Bites. If you like what you just heard, subscribe to our podcast channel so you don't miss the release of our next episode. And... Be sure to check out MPMA's YouTube channel, MPMA360, to catch the latest virtual reality video series featuring amazing 360-degree footage of Bobby Corrigan hunting rodents in the streets of New York City.